So we're in a sermon series on the way, uh, on, on the life of faith with Christ. In the very early days of the church when uh, the, the early Christians were kind of figuring out what to do now that Jesus had left and poured out the Holy Spirit on his followers, like, well, you know, what do we do now? We know we're supposed to change the world. Exactly how do we go about doing that? And so they, they started basically to construct uh, a fashion of living with the Holy Spirit and Christ uh, on the earth, a fashion of living in the kingdom of God on earth as Jesus uh, had, had described it. And they called that fashion of living simply the way. This is the way to do life. They didn't call it the church. Uh, that name came later. They didn't call it a religion. That would have never occurred to them. Uh, they didn't call it a doctrine or anything like that. They simply called it the way. And, and it means uh, in the original language exactly what it means in English. It's just like uh, a manner of, of doing things. It's the way to do things, uh, the way to live the life. And so we're taking a look at major elements in the way. And the reason we are doing that, taking a look at at elements of the way from A to Z, from beginning to end, because, hey, we're all going toward the end, uh, hopefully heading toward eternal life. The reason we're doing that is because if, if we don't know where we are along the way, if we don't know where we are in the path, what we're doing, what we're supposed to do, or what we're not getting around to doing, then what happens to us is we get stuck and if we get stuck, we start to drift. Because usually the way, of, uh, the way that the life of faith dies in followers isn't like dramatic. You don't just wake up someday and say, you know what, I'm not going to believe anymore. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I'm not going to do this stuff anymore. Usually what happens is that you die inch by inch by inch. Is that you just wake up someday and you decide to not follow through. And then a little time goes by, and, and you're, just kind of, yeah, you're just kind of drifting in life. You've just kind of lost momentum. And that can eat up decades if you're not careful. Uh, and then you wake up on your last day. And you're like, wow, I, I missed some stuff. I missed some stuff uh, along the way. Um, and uh, and that, could be, you know, that could be terrible. So basically, we're talking about the way, we're talking about major elements along the way, simply because we don't get stuck. Uh, the first week we talked about being a seeker, because a lot of us start our journey along the way by being a seeker. There are very few legitimate seekers in the earth, and I love them. They are just incredible people. Uh, and the essential skill of seeking is, it turns out, honesty. You know, you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be tireless to be a seeker. You just have to be honest. Particularly, you need to be honest about what's going on with yourself. Then we talk about the skill of believing because, you know, if you are a good seeker, ultimately, you will find a truth to believe in. That's the way that it works. And the essential skill of believing, it turns out, is deciding. And deciding means, uh, the word deciding literally means to eliminate options. To decide something, it's not just that you decide for something, but you decide against everything else except that thing. And that's hard for us to do in life sometimes, particularly in a popular culture dedicated to keeping one's options open. And so the essential skill of deciding is lost 
by and large to this generation. Uh, but we need to master it along the way. Uh, once you've sought after truth, once you've decided on what to believe, well, then you want to live out your faith. You want to start uh, manifesting it, expressing it, living accordingly. And the essential skill of faith is trying. You have to try things because you don't do anything without trying to do something. Faith is all in the trying. It's not even the succeeding. You can succeed or fail, but if you're trying, you are living according to faith. Faith is trying. Faith is trying. It's one of our favorite blue water sayings, and Jesus talked about it all the time. Once you're sort of going in the life of faith, then you want to change. You want to change yourself. You want to grow. You want to evolve into the you. That is the complete you. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the core of the life of the disciple is, is, is to grow and to change, and, and the essential skill of changing is, is realizing that you are not a given, that there is an old you, that there is a new you. You don't have to do things the way uh, that you always did it. You get to choose. Once you started to change yourself, then you want to change others, which I know is a provocative way to say it because it's rude to go around saying, I want to change you. But of course, the idea is I'm not changing you to please me. I'm changing you to be more godly. I'm changing you to please you. <laughs> I'm changing you to be the you that God designed you to be. At least I'm trying as best I can. And, uh, and the essential part of changing is to kind of reproduce is to kind of bring people to faith, is to kind of reproduce the life of faith in you in somebody else. That's what Jesus means when he tells us to be salt and he tells us to be light. And one little insight is if you are not trying to change other people, you yourself will stop changing. That's how it works. If you are not trying to change people for the better toward God, then you will get stuck and people fail to realize this. They just focus on themselves and changing themselves, which feels very, very righteous. But if you're not trying to bless other people, you start to shrink. You start to shrivel. Your growth stops. And the life of faith is like, is like the life of a plant. A plant that is not growing is dying. Um, and a Christian who is not changing is changing for the worse. <laughs> and a Christian who's not trying to change to bless uh, someone else uh, is, is a Christian who is shriveling uh, away. And today we're going to talk about multiplication, which again is another sort of change, but it's not just like changing one person at a time. It's changing a lot of people at a time in chunks. It's not just addition we're talking about today. It's multiplication because Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts out small, and a mustard seed, when planted and grows into a bush, it doesn't just produce another seed. It produces a massive growth with whole bunches of flowers and whole bunches of seeds, and it just kind of takes over the place. And sometimes Christians call that thing multiplication. How can we get multiplicative growth, not just good, solid, one-by-one -one growth, but like explosive growth? How do you get that in the life of a, a Christian? And we see that it begins very early in the life of what we call the early church or the early believers along the way. One of the passages that I put in your scripture, excuse me, in your program this morning is from Acts chapter 2. There's a passage that we quote around here every so often. It's really one of my favorite passages in the New Testament from Acts chapter 2. Uh, just, just a half dozen simple verses. But what's happening here is that 
uh, the original disciples, the folks who have followed Jesus, have just had their coming out party. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them. Peter stood up in the street and gave a, ther- a sermon, and literally thousands of people are beginning to believe in Christ. Thousands of people are joining the way. It's all contained in Jerusalem at this moment in history. But immediately, they were presented with this problem. Well, what do we do with all of these new people, how do, we, how, do we, how do we multiply this life? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. It's the first time that word appears uh, in, in the histories of the early church. In Greek, koinonia, togetherness, sort of a, a spirit of togetherness and love, and the English word, at least in the NIV, is fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That was great. But all the believers were together, it says, and had everything in common, it says. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who were being so-so, those who literally were being restored to life is is what the, the Greek word means. One of my favorite passages, because it, it, it never ceases to blow my mind, all of these incredible things were happening. The Holy Spirit had come. People were saying, I want to believe. I want to follow Jesus. Yes, I want that too. And the people who had followed Jesus and had kind of been tasked with changing the world were looking around saying, well, okay, we got to sort of do something for all of these people. And, and the, the big pillar of their initial strategy was, was something that I would simply call togetherness, fellowship. I mean, how many times does the word together appear in this passage? They just created community. That was like step one. It's like, well, we can do awesome things. We can do miracles. We can see all these incredible things. But what's the way now? And it turns out that the way was creating community. We have this fantastic Hawaiian word for it, ohana, because it's just such a robust word, right? It just means family, but it means more than biological family, you know? Koinonia, you know, togetherness, whatever you want to call it. But that was kind of job one for them. The first thing on the way Uh, to sort of make the most of what was happening, to go from being additive to like, well, multiplicative. How how do we do explosive growth? How do we multiply groups and not just individuals? Well, you have to create groups. Only groups beget groups. Only community begets community. Only churches beget churches. It was that sort of thinking. So they constructed a community. And my goodness, what a community it was. I mean, this was crazy. They met together every day. Want to meet here every day? I don't. There's a lot of chairs to set up. 
you know, and they didn't have a place to meet, so they met in homes. That was the original strategy. We, we call them Ohana groups or family groups, you know. We have these groups that meet uh, on, on weekdays and weekends in people's homes and, and other places. And they broke bread. They shared meal together. They just sort of got together, ate, and, and well, fellowshiped is the Christian-y word. And this sort of radical sharing and mutual support, it said that they owned everything in common, that people were not possessive about what they owned. They sold whatever they had, and they just gave their money to anybody who had need. And it was just this radical generosity, because believe me, generosity is the core value of successful community. It's just like pure community. I mean, pure communism, not the sort of like government, dictatorial sort of communism, but just sort of this generosity of heart. It was literally earth-shaking. It literally changed the course of history, and it gave us things like churches. This is what we came out of. They didn't just make relationships. They didn't just make disciples. They didn't just make believers. They made a family. And that was the key. That was the key to the entire movement uh, as it turned out. So here's a warm-up question for you. We're a little late in the sermon for the warm-up question, but everybody roll your shoulders, give each other high fives, crack your neck, crack your knuckles, get ready, here it comes. Massage your scalp. Get the juices flowing. This is a hard one. It's going to take some creative thought. Everybody say, ooh. What's the difference between reproducing kids and reproducing families? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the St. Patrick's Day. We're on our game. We ask tough warm-up questions. We have Guinness at the coffee bar. What's the difference between just like reproducing children versus reproducing families, having a family for those kids. Can we agree there is a difference? There's a big difference between like having children and shouldering a family, right? We agree that there's a difference? Well, tell me about it. What, what goes into that? Yeah, Steve? Commitment. Yeah, how many people thought something along those lines? I was like, oh yeah, really easy to have kids. Not so easy to raise kids. Not so easy to, you know, sustain all of those primary relationships and do the provision and stuff like that. Um, something like, what is it? I mean, you know the national stat? It's something like, well, over a third of all children born in the U.S. Uh, grow up in single-parent homes now. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, what else? Some other good hands? Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not just it's not just reproducing kids, not just having a lot of kids, but as gathering in. Right? It's gathering in. That's that's excellent. Uh, and you have to gather in whoever comes. There's a hand way there are two hands way in the back, and one of them is my wife, so I must obey. She's telling me to call Laura, yeah. who has just had a kid, by the way.
You can be family to people you haven't created. Yes, that says a lot. What it says is there's a choice, right? Like you can have a kid. Yeah, your child agrees. Um, you, You can have a kid, but that's not enough. You still have to choose. And in fact, the power of choice in creating a family is so awesome that you can be family to, to people who weren't originally your family. Yeah, I think lots of great answers along the way, and I, and I think we get the idea uh, that, you know, it's, it, it's different, right? I mean, to, to kind of sustain togetherness and love and heart and whatever else you would, you would use to define family takes choice, it takes commitment, it takes a, a certain sort of openness I mean, it's just, it's just a lot harder uh, all around. I, I would say there's a difference in what you're reproducing. Like, you can reproduce kid, kids and not necessarily even be a parent, right? But to reproduce a family, whew, I mean, you have to be a parent plus. You have to be a parent and a brother or a sister and a son or a daughter. You have to be cousins. I mean, to reproduce a family, uh, it's, it's really hard to, to say what's not involved, you know, re- uh, relationally. You have to sacrifice a lot. You have to love a lot. You can reproduce individuals, or you can reproduce groups of love. You can reproduce communities. Only communities can reproduce communities. Only family can reproduce family, as it turns out. Because the skills and experience and, and the virtues of doing family, doing ohana, doing community, are only developed within ohana or community. There's nothing quite like fellowship. There's nothing quite like ohana. It develops stuff in you and requires stuff from you that no other experience does. So... That, it turns out, leads to multiplication. Because if you develop those things, if you develop the skills, the virtues, the, the good habits that sustain a family, well, that family can beget another family, can beget another family that gathers in, that, that, that develops, that makes you open. Are you following? I mean, we could probably talk about that for hours, but everybody more or less gets it. Family. So it makes sense that this was the first choice that the early Christians made. There's got to be a community to gather people into, otherwise the way does not work. Otherwise you get stunted really quickly. The essential skill of changing others is reproducing what God has done in you. The essential skill of multiplication, of changing masses of people changing a lot of people is the skill of community or the skills of community, the virtues of community. It's the virtues of family, as it turns out. I remember back, back in the day, 10 years ago, when we started Blue Water Mission, uh, there were a lot of cool people involved. Uh, any of you were around in those days? And we're all very cool. Can we agree? We're, just, like, we're very awesome people, um, really cool. We should, have, we should have a club. Uh, the, the club of, of cool founders. That sounds good. We need a t-shirt. Um, and a lot of cool people involved. Well, not a lot. And we started with about you know, probably 30 or 40 um, relatively committed I- individuals. 
all of whom wanted to do ministry together. And we would experience a lot of ministry together. And we were like, this is cool. We kind of find ourselves on our own now. Let's, let's see if we can continue to do our ministry together. But, but it became apparent uh, to some of us as we got into it, we decided that we would be a church, a real church, as some of us said. It became apparent to us that while all of us were interested in kind of doing ministry, and doing ministry together, only a fraction of us were really willing to shoulder the community as we did it, right? So there's a difference between like doing a certain sort of ministry, doing your sort of ministry, doing your sort of ministry, and then doing the type of ministry that keeps everybody together. Community building type of, of ministry, you know? basic example, you know, like there's lots of ministries involved in the church, and then there are ministries that are just about sort of keeping the church together, like, you know, chairs, setting this thing up, you know, all the stuff that, that goes into like being ready on time every week. That stuff typically is not uh, tremendously uh, glamorous and, and exciting. Um, and that just became a big hurdle uh, for us at the beginning. Who was going to do the sort of ministries that empowered all of the other ministries? You know, uh, who was going to soothe over all of the relational squabbles uh, to keep people together? And, and that stuff was uniquely uh, burdensome because shouldering a community is much, much harder than just having relationships. Shouldering a whole community, shouldering a big family is much harder than just having relationships with people you like or people that you click with. Can I get an amen? Anybody? Uh, so we had to grow, obviously, back in the day. We had to, we had to mature. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I had just had a couple of kids around that time, and I found myself asking, well, what does it take to have children versus what does it take to raise children? Uh, it's easy to have kids. It's a lot harder to create uh, a family. It's a lot harder to create an, an extended family. What does it take to shoulder a whole community? Well, it takes whatever it takes. That's the problem. It takes whatever it takes. And you don't get to decide what it takes, do you? You don't get to decide. You don't get to decide what your kids need. You don't get to decide what your family needs. They just need it. And so you got to find a way, don't you? And that's very challenging. Uh, that's very hard. If you assume responsibility for an extended family, if you assume, assume responsibility for a community, it's like you're signing a blank check. That's really, that's really scary. There are two things about community or, or family living uh, in the spirit, in the life of faith. Uh, the first, uh, it's a lot harder than just having relationships. Having fellowship is a lot harder than just having friends. Uh, living with people in faith and change is a lot harder than just living in faith and change. You know, because people are inconvenient. Turn to the people on your left and right and say, people are inconvenient. You can point a finger if that's helpful. That might be helpful. Just got to drive the point home. <laughs> Excuse me. People inconvenient, and so are head colds. 
Ah, thank you. As a result, huge chunks of the New Testament, uh, those books that we call epistles, they're letters of advice from early Christian leaders to different churches, huge chunks of those letters are about precisely this, are about the ministry of community, the ministry of hanging together and doing the life together. Hebrews 10, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encouraging one another, building each other up, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Even in the very first generation of the church, the leaders of the church had to write the various churches, make these circular letters, and say, don't give up on community. Don't give up on being together. I know you're not going to give up on Christ. I know you're not going to give up on faith. But here's the thing. If you give up on life together, if you fail to commit to one another, all of those things are going to melt away. So let me tell you, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And even in the first generation, people were like, do we really have to do this? Can't we just like hang out with Jesus and be cool? Like, well, no, actually, you really have to do this. You really have to fellowship with people or something goes wrong. In Galatians 2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens. There's a lot in that phrase. Because hanging around together is going to be burdensome on you. So, hey, shoulder that, man. Carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ which is sort of a, one of his fancy ways of, of saying. It's like in the life together, you're complete in Christ. There's a work of completion. That's what fulfillment means in the Greek. There's a work of completion that only comes, that only comes by assuming responsibility for the people around you. It's like, wow, that's provocative. Uh, um, Romans So in Christ, though we are many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the other members. This is one of Paul's favorite analogies. It's like we're we're a body, and we're all different parts, and you can't just like lop off a part. We all have to figure out how to work together, otherwise we're not healthy or we're handicapped. He just uses this analogy in, in many of his letters and we all belong to each other. So turn to your left and right and say, yeah, I belong to you. Again, you might want to point a a finger. If you're really needy, you can grab their shirt collar and say, I belong to you. You can do that. That works. Gets the point across. So it's harder, it can be challenging, and therefore you have to focus on it. You know, that's uh, a big point if you you read uh, uh, the New Testament. Uh, and, and then number two, it's sort of implied, if you don't do it, you get stuck. If you don't do it, the way does not work for you. Uh, you've missed a, a big chunk of, of the way, a big chunk of life. Not only do you get stuck, but if you don't commit to Koinani, if you don't commit to, to Ahana, if you don't commit to fellowship, then um, you potentially take a lot of people down with you. This is something that I've learned a lot uh, as a builder of church communities over the years. Um, and, um, and as a result, I see it a lot in Scripture now when I read it. 
if, if you're not committed uh, to fellowship, to the community, then it's really easy for you to spread the idea that community is bunk. It's really easy for you to spread the idea that whatever community you're a part of is unacceptable. And what you do is that you tempt other people to think that it's unacceptable as well. And you, you, know, you subtly tempt them out of fellowship, which destroys people, you know? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like, you have to go to a Hana group and you have to commit to it to life. For life, you have to be there. It's kind of like a prison sentence is what it is. You know, I'm, no, you know, that's not it. You know, this is more about virtue than law. Uh, but it's just really easy to spread uh, that cancer. And as I've, uh, I've never, uh, you know, been with the church as long as any I've been as I've been at Blue Water, although Sony and I have planted and, and built other churches, and, and this may be, you know, my really big lesson, is, like, you really have to fight against this cancer really, really hard. Because, let's face it, the people around you are unacceptable. Shall we do it again? The left and right and say, you're unacceptable. Go ahead. I think you should point two fingers. Right? I mean, that's the truth. That's the truth. And so it's really, really easy to convince other people that the folks around you are unacceptable, you know, and to kind of, you know, reject or, or judge or, you know, whatever. That's just, it's just really easy to spread that fire. I think in a way it's equally easy to spread the fire of koinonia, of togetherness and community. It's just a little less intuitive for many of us, you know spread commitment. You can do that as well. It's just a little, uh, a little less common. There are thousands of ways to spread the idea that this fellowship is unacceptable or that fellowship is unacceptable. I mean, people do it all over the place. It's human nature. Um, but I think there are a thousand ways to spread the idea of love and commitment and the value of fellowship and community, even though the people around you aren't acceptable. Because that's the gospel of love. Jesus says, love your enemies. You can certainly love people around you even though you don't like them. <laughs> At least they're not your enemy, right? Even though you find them unacceptable. Where there's grace and generosity and forgiveness and stuff for that, and Jesus talks endlessly about that stuff, you can spread that gospel as well. There's a, there's a breed of Christian today that concerns me, sort of breaks my heart, uh, the sort of Christian that hops from church to church, from community to community. Uh, you know, there, are, there can be good reasons to change churches, and, you know, I have not entirely controlled the path of my life. I've moved geographically, and, and you know, one of the reasons Blue Water exists is because the Lord picked me up from one side of the country, Sonia and me, and, and brought us here, and and did this thing. But I'm, I'm talking about just like, well, I'll come here for a while. Well, I've kind of soaked up the cool bits. Now I'm gonna go here for a while, and I'm gonna soak up the cool bit. Church hoppers, there's even a phrase for it in, in modern uh, Christianity. Church hopping didn't used to be possible back in the day. Back in the day, there was only one church per village, one church per town, you know? and then just a few. Well, now we just have a ton of them, and now it's even worse because you can say, well, I'm not going to actually go to a local church. I'm just going to go to my online community, 
you know, or something like that. An online community is far more convenient than like face-to-face -face communities, let me tell you. Um, and you can do stuff like that and just sort of consume what you like from the buffet and never actually have to commit to koinonia. And, uh, you know, and, and, and people spend decades just changing churches every, every few years um, because it's possible now. And I think that's uh, a great attack against fellowship. Look, I'll put it this way. If Satan wants to take you out of the life of faith, he'll probably just sour your view of the people around you. It's his number one strategy. He'll get you out of community, and if you get out of community, certain things stop developing in you. And if they stop developing you, you get stuck and you start to drift. If Satan wants to take you out, he'll probably just make you mad at somebody or make somebody mad at you and hurt you, hurt your feelings and stuff like that. Which is why Paul is always saying to his churches, look, if it's at all possible, live in peace with one another. He just got tired of people getting mad at each other and community falling apart and people dying as a result. Community is a pillar of the way. And so wherever the gospel spread in those explosive days of the early church, leaders took care to build community. Here's uh, our last scripture from Acts chapter 14. Um, the book of Acts is largely comprised of stories of the Apostle Paul just going from place to place and planting churches and starting communities. There are stories about him converting individuals to faith, but there's always an added dimension. There's always a step two. Uh, and so this is, this is uh, a story of uh, Paul as he was going from town to town. Um, and he was being followed by some uh, Jewish non-believers who were essentially trying to get him killed because they didn't like him preaching Jesus. Uh, and so he was in a place called uh, Derby. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They route, uh, stirred up the crowd against Paul, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Uh, the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They're outside Derby now. Um, so... Impressive story. Paul's preaching, uh, the, I think it was in uh, Lystra is where they were, uh, preaching the gospel. The crowd gets mad at him, essentially kills him for preaching the gospel. They leave him so he's dead. I don't know if he was actually dead or just like, you know, so messed up that they thought he was dead. And the disciples gathered around him. I think implicitly what that means is they gathered around him and ministered supernatural healing to him because the dude popped up. Uh, so cool story as far as that, but what really impresses me about it is that he got up and went back to the city where he was just stoned to death or near death. It's like, well, that's commitment. And then the next day, he and Barnabas, his partner, left for Derby, and they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra. Are you nuts? Again? They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, which is where these enemy Jews came from. They're going back to all the places that they were driven out of. 
strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. If a guy who was just stoned to near death encourages you to hang on to faith, you tend to listen to his testimony, right? I mean, that's really impressive. Paul was an impressive guy. You must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, not just one line in the story, but you see a line like this in so many of these stories in Paul's ministry. He converted a bunch of people. He sort of gathered them together. He gave them basic teachings on commitment, and then he would appoint elders. Some of your translations will say overseers. Some of your translations will simply say leaders. What he did is that he appointed he fortified, he identified specific individuals whose job was just to keep the community together. It's like, I've converted a lot of individuals. Now, somebody's got to shoulder the burden for the family, right? There's got to be parents or grandparents or whatever you're going to call it. There's got to be village elders. You know, this, those people, the people who kind of make the people hang together, who make sure that all the stuff that has to do with togetherness happens so that people can, can grow up and to do their callings and fulfill their purposes. There's, there's got to be someone who's thinking about everybody. There's got to be a collection of some ones who are thinking about everybody. And I just love it that Paul did this. In this case, Paul and Barnabas did this because they understand the way. They understand that this is part of the way. They understand that you should not forsake the assembly, that you should not stop gathering together. And this is ministry one. This is square one for the way, uh, for the life. The job of the leaders was to hold the community together. Everyone believed, everyone was encouraged to live out the life of faith. Everybody in Paul's churches was encouraged to do ministry, but a handful were commissioned to shoulder the whole group, to shoulder the, to the togetherness, to be pillars in the house so that everyone had a place to go and so that everyone had a place to be gathered into so that everyone had a place to be gathered into. It's incredibly hard to get people to hang together. It's tempting to take shortcuts to get people to hang together. It's easier to create an audience than it is to create a community. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's easier to create a following. It's easier just to be kind of a dynamic personality that creates a following than it is to be an elder that creates community. Are you following me? You following me? And I'm not judging the way that, you know, any Christian leader does what he or she does. I'm just saying community is, is harder. And we've tried to make a strong choice for that at Blue Water Mission, which is why we're organized as we are. Why, as Kwok said earlier, we encourage an all-play. Why we do small groups or Ohana groups during the week. Why we encourage people to, to get involved with stuff like Sozo ministry, right? To let the people minister to the people. And, 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 and why we have, you know, so many recognized leaders, so many people whose, whose job isn't just to do ministry, but to shoulder the community so that we can all do ministry together. 
That's why we're structured as we, we're structured and why we so often preach, hey, get involved with a group because you will learn and develop there in a way that you will not learn or develop in any other fashion. That's the way. That's the way. And you've got you've to do uh, the way. Audiences are fantastic, but they don't multiply. An audience cannot beget an audience. No audience comes to look at another audience, right? But a community can beget a community, just like a family can create families for generations in different places. If you're following me, I don't know, give me an amen or something. Not everyone, I will take a chihu. Not, not everyone, uh, you know, will be like an elder, like in, in the fashion that Paul appoints here in these towns. But everyone should value community nonetheless and do whatever they can uh, to support community. Because the essential skill of multiplication is community. There's a Harley Davidson community going down Vineyard Avenue right now. They gather every Sunday, don't they? Been listening to them for years. It's an awesome community. Um, everyone should value community for multiplication. The essential skill of, multi of multiplication, of explosive growth, is, is the skill of community, or the skills of community. Why is community important to multiplying believers in the world? We have a saying at Blue Water, culture is the best coach, and cultures come from community. They don't come from individual relationships. They come from a whole gathering of relationships. You know what culture is? Well, nobody really knows what culture is. Culture is just sort of like a, a collection of norms and expectations that mutually reinforce themselves. And so when you walk into Blue Water, you get Bible lessons, hopefully. You might get prayer, but you also just kind of get the feel of the place, the culture of the place. You know, what's Blue Water culture like? Well, Blue Water culture is faith is trying. You know, nobody sits around, everybody participates. And the way that develops in a person is when everybody reinforces that in you at the same time. If only one person reinforces it in you, you won't do it. But if everybody is reinforcing everybody all the time, well, that's like the best sort of coaching there is. You ever played sports? The best coach teams are not the team with the best individual coach. The best coach teams are the teams where everybody coaches each other, you know? So that's what I'm talking about. Culture is the best coach and culture only comes from uh, communities. And only when we're together do we get the full range of gifts, the full range of personalities, the full range of challenges that provoke in us the full range of growth and development. Only with a mess of people do you become the complete person that you're supposed to be, right? Uh, the only caveat is that you have to be, you know, committed to those people. You can't be clickish. You can't just consume this and that and then move on. You get stunted that way. This is why only groups produce groups. It's many of the reasons that it's good for kids to have families. You know, they get constant exposure to a group of people. They don't choose over time. Uh, I have a, a, a friend who works for a, a does research at a big seminary, and uh, she's developed this idea of sticky faith. What makes faith sticky for children? 
because the statistics are terrible. Something like 75% of Christian kids who grew up in the church go away for a job or college, end up leaving the church once they go away from home. And so, you know, the research is, is about, well, what makes faith stick with the kid even after he or she leaves home? And it turns out that, that one of the huge things uh, that makes faith stick with the kid is, is not the faith in the kid's home, but a relationship that that kid has with other adults in his or her church, and whether or not that kid gets to minister alongside those other adults. There's that old African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a whole tribe to raise a child properly, and the research it bears that out. It's really hard to raise Christian kids in a Christian family alone. You need a Christian family and a Christian community. That's the only way that faith sticks. And a, and, and a community in which the kid participates across generations and boundaries. That's what makes faith sticky. And I think it works the same way with adults. It's just that we're researching the kids. Culture is, is the best coach. It's true that the church is one big global family, but don't be the sort of person who loves the idea of global family but rejects your local family. That doesn't work. That's like loving humanity but hating humans. Here's the thing. If you're an individual, you're a small family, and you're just showing up today, am I telling you that you have to commit to this community uh, for the rest of your life or else become lost? No. Breathe easier. You know, that's not the message. But I am encouraging you to engage wholeheartedly in the discipline of fellowship because fellowship is a discipline. You have to, you know, commit to some church. You have to commit to some small group. You have to commit to a group of people, uh, the, the membership in which group you do not get to choose or filter. They should not just be people that you like or people like you. You should commit to togetherness in a spirit of radical generosity, sharing and burden carrying. There is nothing else like it in life. So assemble every Sunday, commit. Go to an Ohana group, go to some small group, if at all possible. Share your life with somebody, assume the burden for somebody. Don't just make friends, don't just make friends. Make community, it's different, it's different. And that's an important skill along the way. It doesn't even matter if you like the people in your community, in fact, there are some advantages when you don't. It forces you to love and to be generous in a unique way. And then, and then, if you want to see multiplication, gather people into your community. Don't just gather people into faith. Gather people into your community. And then your family will do what families do. They will multiply. They will be fruitful. That's been the pattern of the way for 2,000 years. Uh, and it's a pattern that we, that we uh, that can't forget, no matter how uh, introverted or antisocial uh, certain individuals may be. Uh, I'd just like to thank you for being part of uh, my Ohana and, and my community, because there's, you know, there's not a thing about it, about sort of like building family, that comes naturally to me. There's not, there's not one virtue involved that I think I'm naturally excellent at, pardon my grammar. Um, but, you know, you just kind of commit to things in love. 
and good people gather around you in servant-hearted and loving and generous and sharing people. And then it's like miracles happen. Fruitfulness occurs just because that's the way. And I've seen that miracle of fruitfulness happen in my life over and over and over again, even though I feel like, you know, I'm not really great at this. I'm not really great at it. But if it works for me, it's definitely going to work for you because you're a lot nicer than I am. All of you. Well, Ryan's not, but everyone else. All right, let's pray.